HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, open year-round. Learn more at bbg.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Thanks for joining us. Today on the show, we're talking to a owner and bartender who has a spot in Crown Heights where I live. So I'm excited to talk a little bit about the neighborhood and talk about Brooklyn and focus on what it's like to have a neighborhood spot. Today, we're joined by Claire Sprouse. She's bartended, managed, and consulted all across the U.S. from Houston to San Francisco and now, of course, living in Brooklyn and New York City. In February of 2019, she opened her first bar, Hunky Dory, in Crown Heights. It focuses on cocktails made with a sustainability-focused approach, a passion of Claire's that she brings to her first project and has built her career on. She also works on sustainability through the partnership she formed with Chad Arnhold in 2013 called Tin Roof Drink Community. Through their 25 years of combined hospitality experience and pursuit of unique collaborations, they tackle the issues of sustainability within the industry. They've been leaders in this area for quite some time, and they were recognized with the industry's first ever Sustainable Spirit Award and the 2017 Golden Spirit Educator Award, both presented by Tales of the Cocktail. New York Magazine gave Hunky Dory an 82 out of 100, a really, really high score based on the way that they reconfigured their uh, reviews, and they said that it was a quirky and ambitious all-day cafe with a kitchen that scrambled eggs as well as its bar mixes cocktails. So today on the show, of course, we're going to be talking cocktails and sustainability, but we're also going to be talking about owning your first brick and mortar, laying basically all those bricks and mortar and tiles yourself, and of course, what it's like to be your own boss. Claire, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's start off with your childhood. Where were you born and what was it like in your house? Were you, um, were, was your family, did you have an entrepreneurial spirit or was that something that you developed on your own? Um, I was born uh, on the border of uh, 
Mexico and Texas and Eagle Pass, and then spent a considerable amount of my childhood in uh, West Texas, so kind of in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother's from the Philippines. She came over as a nurse. Um, My dad um, was going to school at UT Permian Basin, and um, so they were both really busy. Um, There wasn't a home-cooked meal to come home to every night. Uh, so I had to fend for myself a lot of the time and that involved, you know, getting very creative with microwaves and, um, and learning the ins and outs of fast food nation, I suppose. Uh, so I was definitely a latchkey kid in the truest sense of the term. Um, not that my parents didn't want to cook. They were just, you know, they were busy and kind of hustling in their own right. So I guess that's what has in motivated me it's been instilled in me to just be like a hard worker the permian basin now i'm reading a lot about how there's really like an oil explosion going on there tons of people moving there there seems to be it's sort of like they're calling it like the gold rush there's an oil rush going on is that was that happening when you were a kid or is that a newer development in the last couple years um i mean a part of the state has always been uh built on oil i guess the whole state is to a certain degree but Um, it wasn't for me, it was all about high school football, um, growing up. And then, um, by the time I was like, would be cognizant of that, I, we had moved to Houston and I went to high school and college there. And that's where I came up in like the culinary, uh, the kitchen restaurant community. Do you have siblings? Um, I do. Um, my brother, Ben, he is almost 10 years younger than me. So, and I moved out when I was 17, so I like to say we're new friends. Um, Just getting to know each other as adults, sort (laughs) of. Exactly. But he is actually a bartender in Austin. Uh, He works at the, like, cool kid cocktail bar there. and He just had to follow you and ride ride your coattails. Well, I, you know, he never really understood what I did, and Mm -hmm. I don't think he thought I was very cool to begin with, (laughs) but... Um, he called me like when he was 19 and he was like, Hey, can you help me get a job in the, like a restaurant or bar? I, I really want to like be better at talking to strangers, which is like the sweetest thing a 19 year old young man could ever say. And now fast forward five years, he's like, I don't know, smoking cigarettes, doing shots, getting girls' numbers. A fast-talking cocktail bartender in Austin. Well, what did you think was going to happen when he started working at cocktail bars in Austin? (laughs) There was like a good chance that he was going to turn into, you know, a cool guy bartender, right? (laughs) Um, So when you were, your family made the move to Houston, a huge metropolitan area, really diverse access to everything. Houston has it all. Talk a little bit about when you were just kind of figuring out first jobs. What was, what, where were you looking and how did you get involved in either bars, culinary in the Houston area? Um, honestly, I, I felt I haven't been doing this that long, I think, um, as far as being an owner. I've been bartending for about 10 years. Um, so I was on a pretty fast trajectory. I got my degree in art history. I was working in uh, museums, galleries. And I ended up being a regular at this dive bar in um, Houston called Big Star, best bar in the world. And um, a lot of people from this nearby restaurant that was very cocktail centric and 
um, farm to table driven. They all hung out there. And one day I was like looking for a little bit of a change and I thought I would switch it up for the summer. And over a few late night drinks, they were like, come be a server. And from there it was be a server, be a bar back. And a bartender walks off a shift and all of a sudden I'm a bartender. And then, um, my, um, friend Bobby went on to open his own place in Houston, Anvil. Um, my friend Ryan, um, had taken over the reins at the restaurant and then went on to open his own place, uh, grand prize and start building his empire. And, um, all of a sudden I was the bar manager. And from there I just didn't stop. So you obviously you found something that you really enjoyed and you decided to stick with it, but you had spent a good amount of time in school pursuing art history. You'd worked at a gallery. How'd that go over with your parents when you decided to sort of abandon a, a more normal job, I would say, working in, in the art world, although that can be risky and stressful sure. in its own right. Uh, when you started pursuing working in bars did you think that it would potentially be a career and did you try to sell that to your parents or anything? Um, I really didn't know where it would lead me. I've, I've, I've never been necessarily driven by like long-term goals in that way. Um, I knew that made me very happy and it was very fulfilling. I'd found a community that I, um, that I really loved being a part of. I was, learning so much about a city that I had already come to love and learning a lot more about its diversity in um, a way that I didn't have access to by working in like traditional art institutions. And so I was really, really happy. My parents have like, they, I wouldn't say they wrote me off, but they knew that like from a very young age that I would always be able to handle myself. And so they've never honestly been very concerned with what I was doing. Um, when I was in college, I was, I was knitting like professionally and like doing knit, like knit art installations, like around the world. And my parents were like, okay, honey, whatever you got to do, just, uh, you know, call us if you need anything. And I, I, I don't call them very often. I, but it's, I know they're there and that's always nice. I think all their money was on my brother. So they're probably like a little bit more disappointed with him than anything else. <laughs> Let's not gloss over this knitting thing that you just dropped into the conversation. Talk a little bit more about what a knitting installation is. And when you say that you did it all over the world, um, does this mean that these were commissions? Were you like a, a working artist or was it more like a, an aesthetic contribution to a gallery space? Like, was it a piece of art that you created and then sold or something else? Um, well, when I was, gosh, like maybe 19 or 20, a few friends and I, um, you know, I think every person goes through a craft phase at some point mm -hmm. and we were all trying to get into knitting and we were all very bad at it. And none of us had the patience, um, to, or, um, the patience or, um, the devotion to finish a piece. So we randomly started putting things around like trees and light poles and, uh, you know, door handles. And so I have to apologize to the world for all the bad falling apart knitted pieces <laughs> around trees. Um, because we've, at least we've been credited for starting that. 
And so we were um, able to, you know, travel around the U.S. and be part of uh, like huge um, like art shows. Like uh, I think it's called Bumber Shoot in Seattle. Um, we were in Paris uh, working with a uh, like hundred year old yarn company um, to help them celebrate. And then we've done like small gallery shows with actual artists. Um, and that was, uh, it was a great time in my life because I got to travel and, uh, you know, work with my hands and do something that still like was in this, uh, this world that I was working in or aspiring to work in, which was art history, um, and museums. But that was a long time ago. <laughs> Do you consider making cocktails art or is it something else? Um, I think that when you make, well, for me, when I make a cocktail, there's different levels of it. There's, um, the thing that the element where I'm doing this for a guest. Um, and then there's the part of it that's all, um, like I guess ego to a certain extent and like self-fulfilling, there's definitely that element. Um, and otherwise I, you know, I would just make delicious daiquiris and old fashions for guests and call it a day because a guest is always going to be happy with that. Um, but the part that drives me to create something new and, um, to put different flavors together, uh, that for me, I wouldn't necessarily call it art, but it's definitely in pursuit of something maybe a little bit higher than, um, just delicious. So when you're in Houston and you're, you're getting into the mix and a lot of your friends are either gaining acclaim or at least expanding and opening their own spots, was there a, were you heavily embedded in cocktail culture and, what's called mixology or was it more about creating a culture at, at a specific bar and maybe they did beer and shot specials and they didn't really do cocktails, which thing were you more gearing towards paying attention to, or were you just soaking everything up at the same time? Um, I think I was <sighs> soaking everything up really. I was just trying to learn about like what it meant to create a hospital environment and what it meant to be a neighborhood place. Houston, as large as it is, um, where we were all, my friends and I are all living and is what I consider like the hub of, uh, Houston restaurants was the, is the Montrose area, uh, Montrose Heights and now downtown. And we, you know, everybody kind of knew each other. And so it felt very tight knit, even though it's such a large city. And so it was a little bit about how to create a space and a vision, um, that had an identity, but also be able to serve, um, you know, the local person coming in while they were doing laundry next door. And, um, so I was absorbing a lot. Um, also, uh, trying to take in as much about, food as I could because I didn't have like necessarily a, a world, um, view on culinary, uh, on kitchens and things like that. I was really lucky to work at the restaurant I did my first restaurant, which was, um, considered to be one of the more, more farm to table restaurants. And then I worked at a restaurant that was, um, a couple chefs that used to work at St. John's in London so we had these two English guys making nose to tail food and, um, in Houston and 
for me, that was really great because I got to learn a lot about, um, traditions of food waste and sustainability that have been obviously embedded in kitchen culture and eating culture, um, forever. And I got to do it in this, uh, like really unique, um, kind of what seemed like it was groundbreaking and for Houston at the time. So it seems like you're really, you're learning a lot. You're enjoying yourself in Houston. There's a good community there, but you did end up leaving after a certain amount of time and going to San Francisco, right? I did. Um, as painful as it was for me to leave because, you know, Houston was always this underdog city, um, to Austin, like it's in terms of art, in terms of music for a long time, like bands would always skip over Houston and, I had friends that ended up forming a collective called Hands Up Houston that um, ended up finally making Houston a place where a a band might actually want to stop and play. And nobody talked about restaurants in Houston. And um, it's just been this underrated city for a long time. So most people would move to Austin. They'd move to New York. They'd move to California. And those of us that stayed there were, had this very like, fuck you, Houston's awesome mentality. And we like fought really hard for it. And then I left. (laughs) Um, And no one's ever spoken to you again. (laughs) Exactly. No, it's, um, you know, the cocktail culture there is, I think, one of the best in the, in the world. But at the same time, it's, uh, it was a small uh, pool of information kind of stemming from a couple people. And I just wanted to get different perspectives and um, at, uh, at one point I knew, I thought that I would end up in Texas. And so I wanted to, um, spend some time elsewhere and off to California I went. So did you meet your partner, Chad, in Houston or in San Francisco? Um, so my business partner, um, Chad, we actually met in, in Kentucky, um, sort of on a distillery tour. Uh, there's a, a bartender, uh, educational week called Camp Runamuck, uh, that happens in Kentucky. Now I think it happens two to three times a year. And you said educational, then you said the name and (laughs) everybody listening thought that does sound like a party. (laughs) It, It definitely, um, is, you know, it's bartending. It should always be fun, but it's. There's a, a an element of camaraderie and good times, but there's it's also about going to the distilleries and seeing whiskey up close and personal. And so we actually met there, and he was living in Boston at the time, uh, running some really great bars out there. And I was already in San Francisco, and he, um, a few months later, ended up moving to San Francisco to open a bar called Trick Dog. And, uh, about a year after that, we started working together. So what was your first job in San Francisco? I worked at a bar called Rick house. Um, it was a financial district, like in the, like the cliche financial district cocktail whiskey bar. Um, actually not, uh, (laughs) it's, it definitely had like this element of like, ties loosening and whiskey flowing very heavily, but we, it was a very rowdy bar. I called it like the businessmen gone wild bar because, um, first of all, a lot of people in that area are on East coast time. So once wall street closes, uh, which is like two o'clock ish in San Francisco, um, that's when 
people start lining up outside the door and uh, they start hitting the whiskey pretty hard uh, before they get on their trains to go back to the suburbs. And so we would blast like black keys, black Sabbath and, but still be wearing like silly bow ties and suspenders and pouring whiskey. And it was a pretty fun environment. It was one of my favorite jobs I ever had. Even in New York, there aren't that many bars that are full at three 30 in the afternoon, you know, like happy hour in New York is, is blasting and it's definitely a thing, but we don't have many spots that you can find a hundred businessmen drinking at three o'clock in the afternoon, even in New York. Um, so that feels like it was probably sort of a crash course in speed and probably like managing the crowd, um, but maybe not mixing like tons of intricate cocktails, right? Um, at the time, our cocktail list was very, it was actually beautifully simple. Um, it was, they, everything was delicious, everything, and we were very proud to serve. Um, but it was, it was definitely built for speed and uh, to get drinks in people's hands very quickly. Uh, I certainly learned a lot about, you know, serving uh, an international crowd as well. Uh, it was a lot of tourists because we were very well known. Um, think like Dead Rabbit, I suppose, of, uh, but not as fancy um, as of, of San Francisco. And so I was dealing with um, businessmen that wanted to talk to, uh, you know, the male bartender about whiskey. And I probably knew more about whiskey than anyone on the bar. And, um, and then tourists that, um, were just like in awe of the place. And so it was definitely, uh, an exercise in patience and on mul multiple levels, but, um, and speed for sure, because it was just so, so busy. Uh, and it really like taught me the value of, um, like how to talk and work at the same time, how to convey like warmth in like three seconds when you don't have the time to get to know. It's not like being in Crown Heights now where I can get to know my neighbor. It was like you have to win somebody over and make them feel good about being in a bar that had these towering shelves of whiskey and um, that were, it's kind of daunting to order in. It's a crazy skill that it's – I feel like it's really hard to teach uh, how to make somebody be able to connect with a customer quickly, and most servers can't do it. But really good bartenders, I think even average bartenders, have, find their way in to kind of get you comfortable and get you interested in it, which is like a really underrated skill in hospitality. I think most people think that it's just like if you know the menu back and forth and you know how to make cocktails, like you can do the job, but that's not really the case. You can't yeah. do it nearly as well. It's a, it's a guest-facing job, so you have to be able to produce things and make things, but also um, you're on stage for people and it's uh it's a hard uh, little dance to maneuver you worked at abv which uh obviously contributed a lot to your your overall career and understanding and then you also got into consulting around this same time can you talk a little bit how you started to make these transitions into uh becoming more in charge of what your own direction would be and not working at other spots as much and making that transition out into being even more forward-facing? 
Um, well, when I moved to San Francisco, it was with the idea of learning from a lot of other people. Um, and I thought that would, uh, happen like learning under people, like, um, working for people. And what I learned when I was there was that I had, um, there was just as much value, um, sitting across the bar from, um, from people and that I still had a lot of a unique perspective and, um, that I still was very driven to be a leader and a manager in that way. So I ended up falling into management roles very quickly there um, while still trying to learn as much from my community as possible and contribute to it. Uh, but um, eventually I uh, started getting into consulting because uh, it, it kind of allowed me, uh, I was inspired at first because it allowed me to uh, interact with a lot of different staff and uh, I like teaching a lot. I like sharing information a lot. And so it would allow me to interact with a lot of different people and touch a lot of different um, different minds, I suppose, with uh, my hospitality, with my spirits education uh, perspective. And that was the main driving factor. Um, and then getting to work with a lot of different chefs out there. I mean, there at San Francisco, there's so much to learn from the restaurant community um, and so many like brilliant minds out there and I just really wanted to be around that as much as possible let's talk about one of those brilliant chefs and bywater uh, David Kinch known pretty much universally as a genius uh, has very intense ideas that I've only seen from afar via you know, movies about him and TV shows where he's featured. Uh, peel back the curtain a little bit for us. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to be part of that project. And clearly you're incredibly interested in sustainability and finding unique creations and product that you can bring into your contribution to the restaurant. Talk a little bit about how you worked together on that project. Sure. Um, well, so for me, the last several years, um, sustainability has been a focus of mine. Um, but when you're consulting for other people, it's about helping them realize their vision. Uh, so it's not necessarily like you go into every place I've consulted on and it's Claire sustainability bar in this Japanese restaurant. (laughs) Um, but it is definitely something that we try to integrate, um, because it's smart and I think it adds its value to all those places. Uh, but uh, we worked for Chef Kinch on the Bywater, which is uh, was his second restaurant um, in addition to Manresa. And couldn't be more different. Uh, Manresa is this three-star Michelin place. It's, it's beautiful. It's very serene. Uh, the Bywater is um, inspired by New Orleans, obviously, named after the neighborhood, the Bywater. And his time spent cooking there and we had a daiquiri machine on the back bar and there's po'boys and raw oysters and but um done with just as much attention to quality and sourcing as I think he um extends to Manresa as well um so it's a lot more casual and working at first I was like oh my gosh it's Chef Kinch but (laughs) um he's just like the nicest I mean, he's living the dream. He lives in Santa Cruz. He wakes up in the morning. 
He goes surfing. He grabs some tacos. He goes to Manresa. He'll stop by the Bywater and, you know, visit the bakeries. And I'm like, you have like a, a very cool chef life. <laughs> and he's just really relaxing and um, kind. And, you know, when shit hits the fan, for, and from my perspective, he, you know, takes the time to help understand why and to make everybody better. And it's great. I mean, he's just like a very like relaxing soul to be around. And you were doing that project alone or with Chad? With Chad. As part of your consulting As company. part of Tin Roof. And it was great. We um, did our, you know, Louisiana and New Orleans is very close to me. I, I consider myself not just a Texan, but a Gulf Coaster, um, having lived also a little bit in Louisiana and Florida um, in between all that Texas time. And uh, so... It was great to bring a little bit of um, all the things that I care about and what makes New Orleans so special and get an opportunity to put that in a glass, uh, as well as explore some spirit categories. I had this idea that it was going to be this big Madeira bar (laughs) in Los Gatos, California, uh, because Madeira was like the original spirit of the South. And, uh, that's what like everybody was drinking for wine at the time. Um, we ended up only having, I think like two Madeiras on the back bar, but we sold a lot of them. So I don't think it was a complete failure. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about another move that Claire made and also obviously her new project in Brooklyn. Stick with us here on the line. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Katie Kiefer, and I'm the host of What Doesn't Kill You here on HRN. Every week, I sit down with journalists, authors, scientists, or activists to identify and explain some of the key issues in our food system. I've done shows on food waste, labor issues, meat production, water, you name it, I cover it. You can find What Doesn't Kill You wherever you listen to podcasts, and on heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn featuring spectacular plant displays year-round. Mark your calendars for Saturday, September 28th when the Chili Pepper Festival returns to Brooklyn Botanic Garden. At this all-day celebration of all things hot and spicy, indulge in sizzling bites from 40 food artisans, Enjoy spicy food demonstrations, foodie-friendly tours and talks, activities for kids, and live performances by musicians and artists around the garden. Stay through the evening for a special concert that brings New Orleans to Brooklyn. Festival goers can jam out to the legendary New Orleans musicians John Papa Gross, Walter Wolfman Washington, and New Orleans Queen of Soul, Irma Thomas. Joining the fun will be Big Chief Monk Boudreaux, bringing the traditions of the Mardi Gras Indians to the heart of Brooklyn. Learn more about Brooklyn Botanic Garden at bbg.org. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Today, I'm joined by Claire Sprouse. In the first half of the show, we were talking about growing up in Texas, uh, kind of finding herself in Houston and finding her community there. 
and learning a ton and also deciding that she wanted to learn more and heading out to San Francisco and spending some time there. And the journey, of course, not over yet because you decided to make your way to New York City. What was the reason that you wanted to come to the East Coast? And when you made that decision, did you have a spot in mind in New York that you wanted to maybe go to? Did you have a job in waiting? Was it a spur of the moment decision? Talk about that process. Uh, well, the last couple years in San Francisco, we Chad and I had uh, looked at a lot of properties. We had talked about opening our own space. Um, San Francisco is a really special town, but it has its, you know, it's expensive. People always laugh when I tell them I moved to New York because it's cheaper. Um, but it's true. It's, it's expensive to live in. It's expensive to own a business in for a million reasons. And, um, and I just was just, just ready to make a new move. Um, I knew that as far as living, we would pro- I'd probably end up in Crown Heights uh, whenever I came to visit, I would visit my friend um, Ivy Mix. She owns Leyenda in Carroll Gardens, um, but she's lived in Crown Heights forever, and I really love the neighborhood. Uh, so I ended up staying with her for a little bit and then um, uh, moving into my friend Piper's apartment um, when him and his wife moved out. And he actually owns Oxalis, which is in the neighborhood as well. Um, so I've just um, only lived in Crown Heights since I've since I moved here. Cool. And so you, you obviously, you had a lot of connections on the ground. Like you know, a ton of industry people. Were you, did you come here with the express (coughs) idea of like, I'm going to get on the ground. I'm going to open something right away. What was the time frame for making those decisions about like, I'm going to work there. I'm going to look for spaces immediately. What, what, (coughs) what was the thought process on that? Um, well, the first few months I was here, I was actually flying back to San Francisco, like every other week to wrap up some of our projects. Uh, and then I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, I knew that I didn't necessarily want to open a place right away. Um, just because I didn't know the lay of the land, you know, I didn't know about ordering. I didn't know, didn't have like, well, while I didn't know a lot of bar people, um, it's very different than like being a working bartender, a working manager and operator. And so, uh, about a few months after I moved here and I had, um, I didn't need to go back to San Francisco anymore. I was sort of just checking out like the scene and, um, I stumbled across a restaurant that in Williamsburg that I thought like met, uh, a lot of the same, had a lot of the same things that I cared about, uh, sustainability, um, being open all day, a very bright space. Uh, and those are all the things that I wanted to eventually, um, have my space and body. So, uh, I started working at a, a small restaurant, smallish, big restaurant <laughs> called Sunday in Brooklyn. Uh, and I worked there for about a year doing uh, cocktails and uh, their spirits program. And we had Jamie on the show. And the so we definitely talked a lot about what Sunday in Brooklyn, how it started off and what it's become, uh, has become very popular in the neighborhood. Uh, long, long waits, like 
touristy clientele that comes in. Uh, was it a project for you that allowed you to grow and, and expand and, uh, and try out new things? Uh, was it the type of place where there was so much going on that you basically came in and there was already sort of a, a framework and you fit into it or, or was it a little bit like you had free reign? What was it like? Um, Working at Sunday, it was busy, and so there was always something going on, and when you're open that many hours every day, there's not a lot of, you know, time to do things that's, like, that you need to, to, there's no time to, like, deep clean, there's no time to, you know, sit in R&D without somebody coming up to the bar and asking you for something, um, so that was, uh, challenging, uh, they, they, they were really great and they gave me a lot of free reign over the program. Um, I, to a certain degree, you know, again, this was their vision and they had things that they wanted to do. And I, um, tried to execute those while still like maintaining my identity and what I wanted to bring to it. Um, and we met in a, a nice middle ground. Eventually I ended up leaving cause they wanted to go in a different direction and I was, uh, getting ready to open my own place. So let's talk about Hunky Dory. There's, there's this point, at least for me and a lot of people that I've spoken to, that it just crystallizes in your brain. Okay, I'm doing my own spot, and it's going to be this, and you start to build it out. For some people, it takes a long time for that to sort of come together as like my one sheeter that I can, or my elevator pitch that I can describe to people. How long did it take you and Chad to realize what you wanted Hunky Dory to be? And did you have it all figured out before the space or not? Um, you know, honestly, I had to be very, um, you know, I kind of had a vision of what I wanted to do, but ultimately it was, I knew that I would be determined by the space that we actually got. Um, so where we are now is the third space that I would, that we worked on like seriously, um, trying to, you know, close the deal on it. And the first space we looked at was in Williamsburg. We negotiated that deal for about three months and it was uh, significantly smaller. Um, and obviously Williamsburg is a very different neighborhood than Crown Heights. Um, and then the second space we looked at was closer to home, was in Prospect Heights. Because um, eventually when the Williamsburg deal fell through, I was like, why am I trying to do something in Williamsburg? I don't hang out in Williamsburg, <laughs> to be honest. And it's really hard to get to from my house. And... So we started looking closer to home, and then that second space was, um, it was in Pro Prospect Heights um, proper, and um, very different. It had, like, uh, like a, a performance space, too, so it was like, okay, so would we do, like, have music or shows, things like that, and then that was really painful when that didn't work out because we uh, spent a lot of money. Uh, on lawyers and all that good stuff and time. And when that fell through, um, actually the next day I went to look at a place that sat about 12 people and 
in my neighborhood down the street. And I was like, okay, I can adapt and it would be really fun to do something super, super small and that I could operate like one or two people with. And when I was walking home from that space, I happened to walk by the space we're in now and saw that the business that was there closed. And then a month later, we signed the papers. And then a month after that, two months after that, we were open. And so it was, a, a, we kind of had a framework of what we wanted, but I've always, um, my friend, I can't remember if it's Greg or John. They're kind of interchangeable because they're business partners in San Francisco. They're both very nice, handsome men. But, um, you know, they always told me that you can't just like shoehorn your concept into a neighborhood, into a space. Like you have to like be responsive to what that neighborhood, what that space needs. And uh, that's what we've tried to do with Hunky Dory is um, be adaptable and, um, think about what we're contributing. You hit on one of the really frustrating parts about going out on your own and trying to start a business, which is you just, you need money. Like you need money to spend time not working. You need money to hire lawyers all, you know, once you even get the space, there's always work that has to be done even before the work really starts. You know, it just, there's all these pieces to the puzzle and, even when you have a solid roadmap, nothing is a sure thing. You know, you lose spaces. So uh, to talk more about financials, first I want to ask about uh, getting a liquor license in New York. Is it hard? Is it easy? Was it harder than San Francisco? What are the general costs associated with that? And then secondary from a financial standpoint, you you talked a lot about specific sizes of spaces, and it seems like you looked at a lot of permutations. Like you could have very well opened up a 12 seater or a 70 seater with an event space. And I imagine when you run the P and L's and your projections on those type of spaces, we're talking light years apart. So first question is liquor license. How do you get it? Second question is like, um, how do you make sure that a bar in New York city is successful? Uh, oh. <laughs> um, so in California, one of the big reasons that I didn't find San Francisco to be super viable for us as a business owners was that liquor licenses, um, there's a moratorium on them. So you have to buy existing licenses and they usually start around 200, $250,000. That's for a piece of paper. And, you know, that's a huge chunk of capital <laughs> to put towards something and to pay off. Um, on top of high minimum wages and high rents and things like that. Um, so in San Francisco, it it just didn't seem feasible, um, and that was one of the main reasons. Um, in New York, getting a license is, I mean, relatively cheap compared to that. Um, you hire your lawyer, and then you pay your five dollars $6,000 to the SLA once you get everything um, squared away. But... It's all the stuff in between that's kind of a pain in the ass. Um, depending on what neighborhood you're in, the community boards um, can be very difficult. They're not the, you know, they're not the final say in whether you get your license, but they do have a lot of sway. And honestly, if your community board is super against you being there, then, you know, is that going to be a great environment for you in the long term? 
Um, I was really lucky because I had already been living in San in Crown Heights. Um, I go to all my community board meetings because it's just something that I get off on. Like I'm like an old, you know, NIMBY, not in my backyard person, um, just in the making. And so, um, I like knowing what's happening in my neighborhood. I live there. I'm very guilty of not leaving sometimes even before the, the space opened. And, um, I want to know like what's happening at our community garden, what's going on with the parking on Flatbush. <laughs> and so I knew a lot of the people at the community, at the community board. I also, um, probably went to like four or five SLA meetings, hearings, um, in our community board, um, subcommittees before I actually went up to bat. So I, I knew what they were going to be asking for. I knew what they were looking for. I knew some of the issues that would come up and I just tried to prepare myself. Um, so it's a lot of, um, luckily I had a great lawyer that made things very simple for me and kind of gave me a great roadmap. Um, but it's, you know, a lot has to do with you being able to defend your concept, defending your contribution to the community. Um, and you know, it's, that's why they're set up. They want to make sure that it's not going to be a club coming in. Uh, I felt pretty good going in and I, I left, I got out pretty unscathed in the long run. So, um, you know, it's hard to, it's not as hard to defend a, a place called Hunky Dory <laughs> uh, compared that, to... That will be an all day. Yeah. You, know, you weren't like, we open at 10 p.m. and <laughs> yeah, we will blast music in the backyard every night. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've seen, I mean, they're tough. They're really tough and sometimes unnecessary, unnecessarily tough. So it'll be interesting. I, th- I think there was a bill passed last year um, that um, has put forth limits on community board, um, board members, uh, terms. So it'll be interesting to see how neighborhoods progress from there and small businesses as well. I've definitely been to a meeting and seen someone get eaten alive up there before. It uh, is it, it can, rough. <laughs> it can be, it can be in very adversarial type of environment where even if you all do live in the same community, it might not necessarily <laughs> look that way during the meeting. Uh, and so from, um, from a financial standpoint, I, I think most people will say that, you know, even at a non bar focused restaurant, alcohol helps carry you. It's extremely difficult to do, uh, to do a restaurant without alcohol. And I think the flip side of that is that, um, there's, there's always going to be people that say that doing food is extremely difficult and the labor is challenging and all those other things. But you went forth and, and decided to do a place that has food all day. Uh, and we're not just talking like you have a bag of chips, wink, wink behind a bar. (laughs) Like you have a real food program. This is a restaurant. Yes. And a bar. I accidentally opened a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So let's talk about that because uh, I think it's – there's so many places in New York that uh, that are bars and you can get an empanada. <laughs> sure. Or a bag of chips or some – whatever. And um, you've got a full-on menu and a chef. Let's – talk a little bit about how that came to be. If it truly was accidental, take us through how you stumbled Um, backwards into opening up a bar, a restaurant. Well, I knew I always wanted to open an all day space. Um, and not just because they're like the new, like having a moment 
type of restaurant, but uh, I'm probably like the only bartender in the world that ever liked working brunch. I love working brunch and I like taking care of people in like this desperate time of need <laughs> where it's like they're either hungover or if they don't get their table right away, it's the worst possible thing that could ever happen to them. I'm fine with those people. Yeah, brunch and... is supposed to be fun, but it's actually like, the most stressful eating yes, engagement it's... that you can partake in. Yes. Um, I mean, I, people are always like, Oh, brunch service, like, you know, working the line, working bartending. I'm like, actually I think hosts have it worse <laughs> on brunch than anyone else, but, um, you gotta fix skin. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to do an all day space. I love coffee. Um, I like the ability to interact with people, um, outside of just having alcohol or nighttime, um, service. And so, um, I knew we would be open early and I knew, and after working at Sunday in Brooklyn that also opened at, I think eight or eight thirty, I knew that I would be capable of that. Um, and I knew that we wanted to, I wanted to do food cause I am rarely like ever drinking and not eating and eating and not drinking. Like I, I really like that dynamic. Um, and I think people, um, they, really want food in bars it's hard to, I think it's harder to have a bar without food than without um, the level at which we wanted to do it um, I wanted you know something playful I knew that we'd have like a real kitchen set up um, the kitchen that we inherited luckily was like real like it wasn't a series of hot plates it was a, a serious kitchen and so we were really lucky with that um, I didn't realize brunch was going to be so busy <laughs> that we would get so much um, like recognition for like our egg sandwich and things like that. And so um, we're lucky that we have the uh, tools that we inherited from uh, this turnkey space that we got uh, because we really pack them in on the weekends. Uh, but yeah, I always knew we wanted to do food. I and Honestly, I didn't no, I would have a coffee shop slash bar slash restaurant. Um, but to a certain degree, you have to accept what happens, what the, what people use your space for. And, um, most people are drinking and most people are eating at the same time. So it's great. So now that you do have this multifaceted, multifunctional space, you're the managing partner what has been something that has been really challenging or surprising as you've made the transition from being a lot more focused on spirits and consulting and having like a specific zone of a restaurant be under your purview to the entire thing being yours to manage and run? Um, you know, we are, we run pretty bare bones over there. I'm the managing partner. I'm the GM. I'm the head bartender, I guess, um, as far as like creativity goes. Um, I'm the plumber, I'm <laughs> the everything there. Um, so uh, I'm actually like, I have to apologize because I'm, I'm really stuffed up right now. I've had this cold for a week. Um, one of the perks of ownership is that you there's nobody that can cover you. And so especially when you're such an integral part of service and operations and so my, my sickness has lingered for a little bit longer than I would like, but, um, you know, it's, I'm 
the ordering and staying organized is those are the easy parts to me, making cocktails and being creative. Those, those, that comes naturally to me. Um, being responsible and, um, for your staff and their well-being is something that I strive towards, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard to have that many people under you and not just front of house, but kitchen and, um, making sure that, you know, if the dishwasher doesn't show up, like, you know, the only person that's going to step in is you or chef. Um, and just having like that weight on you is, is, is very taxing. It's emotionally and mentally taxing. And, um, so that's something that has been a challenge to me, um, on top of all those other things. And then, um, you know, things weirdly only break on Fridays. And (laughs) so, um, that's, and when, you know, the repair guy costs like overtime to come out and fix. So, um, all those like secret little, somebody told me that owning a bar restaurants, a nickel and dime business, um, you're just trying to make money here and there. And it's a nickel and dime business on the, on the other side, you know, money is all that bits of change, all those little deliveries, they all chip away at your, at your net. And it is, it's, it's hard. Um, so I've been learning a lot. Um, and luckily I have a pretty thick skin and a high capacity for work. I like to work. Um, and I, I wish I was behind the bar more, but usually I end up being on the floor. That's like my one, like real, like, aw shucks. Like I really like bartending. Um, I like, you know, being free of all those other things and just doing the task at hand, which is like making somebody happy and, um, getting drinks out fast and doing the dance. And, um, but now I have to do it with like a million other things and answering emails. Jeez. (laughs) I get so many emails about reservations and it's like the area to submit your email request says, please make reservations on Resi. (laughs) And I still get a million emails about reservations. And you're assuming that people will read, yeah, the, anything or the website or any or I get any it. Information. I mean, it's a hard thing to complain about people wanting to come in. But. That is a great problem to have, and because you're so forward facing, and obviously you're there all the time, and and you have the ability to to interact so much with your customers, that's got to be really rewarding. Um, it's got to be really nice to to be in a place that, you know, you and Chad, you built it with your own hands. You were saying that you painted it and laid the tile and you yes. really did everything yourself on this first project. And that you were also saying that you, uh, were able to basically fundraise internally. Like you didn't have to go, you didn't have to go to outside folks in order to, to get the project open. We were, um, you know, when I told Chad that I was really ready to do this and take the lead on this project, um, and I told him that I was going to fundraise. And at the time he was, it happened that he was getting ready to sell his condo in Boston. He had bought a, a condo in Boston in Jamaica Plain in this little neighborhood way, way back in the day when there wasn't much going on. And now there's like a Whole Foods down the street. And So he was getting ready to sell his condo and he's like, let's just, you know, here's the amount of money we 
thought we were going to need. <laughs> we only went over by like uh, 30,000, which I think is really good. Not bad. Uh, we didn't do any build out also. Like there's certainly some things to the space that I would have changed um, from the previous restaurant to ours um, structurally, but I didn't want to go through red tape. I didn't even, I wouldn't even know where to begin. You just don't have the time and the money if you have to get open basically. Exactly. And so, um, that was, you know, we ended up doing everything, um, ourselves and that money went fast. Wow. It is crazy how fast that money goes. Yeah. New York, not so cheap anymore. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's definitely not, especially, you know, you'd be surprised a neighborhood like Crown Heights. It's, Franklin Avenue, rents are high. Changing dramatically. Changing dramatically. Um, yeah, it's it's shocking how uh, how much the neighborhood is changing. And I've only been there a very short amount of time. And it's it's good. I mean, I hope it still retains its, um, its character. Uh, we try to price things to be an everyday space and not just a special occasion space. And hopefully... Um, price things that are in a way that's welcoming to uh, everybody in the neighborhood. It's a quickly gentrifying neighborhood and we don't have enough time to cover all that and what, what that entails and opening up a restaurant and in, in a, in a neighborhood where every week there's changes block to block, but um, it would be interesting to circle back honestly in in a year and a half or so when you've been open for a little while we can chat about what it's like to have opened up a neighborhood spot in a changing community and uh and what it's like to have become firmly embedded in that in that neighborhood uh i want to thank you for coming here and sharing uh your story about your your new spot let everybody know what the address is what the hours are where they can come and find you because obviously you're there um, I am there. Um, we are, uh, in Crown Heights, Brooklyn on Franklin Avenue at 747 Franklin. We're closed Tuesdays and, uh, weekdays we're open 8am to 2am and weekends 9am to 2am. And we do food all the way till 1am, hard 1am. Full, full menu until 1am. Full menu. Yeah. Which is super at, cool. Uh, 12.58am and you can still get food. Not many places do that. Maybe go in at 12.48 and don't make the kitchen <laughs> pull their hair out. No, just kidding. Go in at 12.58, order the full menu. Put them to the test. <laughs> go see Claire at her new restaurant. Thanks a lot for being here. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Join us every Tuesday for new episodes of The Line at 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. The line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.